Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. have you back as we wrap up our festive food theme. It's been a bumpy ride this November, but we made it through ancient Greece, the Ottoman Empire, and Africa, and I'm thankful you're still with me. Ah, thankful. It's a good week for that. It's Thanksgiving week. And in fact, today is Thanksgiving Day. A happy Thanksgiving to you all. I suppose there's no better place to start talking about festive food in the United States than Thanksgiving. The story of the first Thanksgiving is pretty well known. The tale of the Mayflower Pilgrims sitting together with American Indians at the Plymouth Plantation, thanks in large part to the diplomatic efforts of Tisquantum, who you would know better by the name Squanto, a feast to celebrate a successful harvest, the first Thanksgiving in 1621. But what details are known beyond that simple tale? What exactly was the nature of the feast, and what did they eat? And on that note, who was preparing this food and who was eating it? Let's explore the history to get those answers and more. The Plymouth Plantation was an English venture established in 1620. The name was given by John Smith during his earlier survey of the area. Plymouth was the capital of the colony and developed into the town of Plymouth that we know today. The pilgrims who founded it were first known as Puritan Separatists. In particular, most of these Separatists were known as Brownists after Robert Brown, a Separatist leader of the 1500s before his reconciliation with the Church of England in 1586. Though he was no longer a part of it, the Brownist movement revived in 1587. It was met with great resistance, including the arrest and eventual execution of the first two leaders. John Robinson and John Smythe each founded Brownist congregations and settled them in Amsterdam in 1609. Of these groups, it was half of Robinson's church that boarded the Mayflower and departed England on September 6, 1620. Robinson, however, did not make the journey. He and the rest of the congregation were delayed several years, and he died on March 1, 1625, before he could make that journey. Sad that he never made it, but those members of his congregation that did make the journey certainly became part of a pretty big legacy. So those are the people who set out on the Mayflower. Unfortunately, many of the original 102 pilgrims who arrived would not make it to the first Thanksgiving. The first landing party at Plymouth arrived on December 21, 1620, where the famous Plymouth Rock is said to have been their landing point. The harsh New England winter made construction difficult, and the first building, a common house, took two weeks to build. Meanwhile, the women, children, and those who weren't strong enough to work all remained on the Mayflower. By the end of January, 45 of the 102 settlers had died from disease, a lack of shelter due to the difficulty building in winter, and otherwise poor conditions on the ship. As a result, out of the 19 planned homes, only seven were built. It was by the end of January that they were finally able to offload supplies and move into the colony. The first formal contact with the American Indians took place on March 16, 1621. It was, apparently, quite a bold meeting at that. This involved an American Indian named Samoset. 
He was from the Abenaki tribe and was a Sagamore. This refers to one of the two highest-ranking chiefs. The other is Sachem, which is the higher-ranked of the two. The Sagamore is elected by a single band within a tribe, while the Sachem represents the entire tribe. Samoset had learned some English from fishermen in Maine. So, using what he'd learned, he walked right into the colony and boldly welcomed the Englishmen. And if what I've read is correct, he then asked for a beer. After this startling introduction, Samoset met with the pilgrims and they learned that an epidemic had wiped out the Patuxet who had previously lived in the area. All except one, Squanto, who had been abducted from the region in 1614. A man named Thomas Hunt had been left behind by John Smith to gather up a haul of cod to sell in Malaga, Spain. However, Hunt decided to add some other valuable cargo. Under the pretense of trade, he lured 20 American Indians from Patuxet onto his ship, including Squanto. They were then confined on the ship and Hunt set sail. His attempts at wealth failed, however. He tried to sell the captives in the Strait of Gibraltar, but friars from the Catholic Church discovered him and took the American Indians to teach them about the Christian faith. From there, we don't know what Squanto did or how he got to England. Even John Smith, who states that Squanto lived in England for a while, makes no mention of what he was doing. Whatever it was, he returned to New England and sailed to his home of Patuxet with an adventurer named Thomas Dermer, who had previously sailed with John Smith. It was then, near the end of 1619, that Squanto discovered his entire village had died during his time overseas, following the abduction. The plagues making up this epidemic have been attributed to smallpox, a blood infection called leptospirosis, and several others. In a way, it's sad to think that he escaped the epidemic to become the sole survivor of the Patuxet because Thomas Hunt had abducted him and taken him away from his home. It's also because of this abduction that Squanto was able to speak fluent English when working with the pilgrims. A bit of history that sometimes gets overlooked when we tell this tale of a friendly American Indian helping the pilgrims. So it was that the time of the founding of the Plymouth Colony found Squanto living with the Poconocet tribe. The pilgrims also learned from Samoset of an important leader in the area, Chief Massasoit of the Wampanoag Confederation of Tribes, which remains today as a group of five officially recognized tribes. It was with the help of Squanto and Samoset that a wary Massasoit agreed to meet with John Carver, governor at the time, and negotiate peace. And guess what they did while they negotiated? They ate together. So now we have everyone in place. The remaining pilgrims have survived thanks to Squanto's teachings regarding cultivating corn, catching fish, avoiding poisonous plants, and extracting sap from maple trees. The harvest has been successful. Time for Thanksgiving, right? Sort of. The first Thanksgiving was a bit different from what we know today. For one thing, it wasn't on the fourth Thursday in November as it is every year. Rather, it was a three-day event that took place between late September and mid-November, organized by Governor William Bradford to celebrate the first corn harvest. In later years, various presidents would declare a Thanksgiving holiday, but each one seemed to have their own idea of when it should be celebrated. Not until 1863 did Thanksgiving become the yearly national holiday it is today, thanks to a proclamation by President Abraham Lincoln. Also, the first Thanksgiving wasn't called Thanksgiving. It was just a harvest feast with their American Indian allies. 
On that note, let's address who was actually there. Our source for this information is from a first-hand account written by Edward Winslow, one of the founders of the colony who attended this event with his wife. It is believed a little over 50 colonists participated. Remember that 45 of the 102 pilgrims on the Mayflower died during that first winter. Getting into the specifics, it is believed that 22 men, 4 married women including Winslow's wife, and at least 25 children and teenagers attended. To be clear, those four women that attended are the only women who survived to this point. Out of 19 women who sailed on the Mayflower, only these four survived that first winter. Looking at the American Indians present at this feast, Massasoit was in attendance along with around 90 men. You may have been taught that these men were invited, but we actually have no proof of that invitation. It is quite uncertain how they came to be here. One possibility is that Massasoit and his men were in the area because they would make diplomatic rounds to other native groups at the end of the harvest, which brought them to Plymouth at this particular time. It is also possible that he was there following a statement made to the pilgrims back in March, in which he informed them he and his men would be back to plant corn in a part of Plymouth that still belonged to his people. Whatever the case, we do know that they were there and that they outnumbered the pilgrims by a ratio of about two to one. And for them, giving thanks was already a daily part of life, not just one day or one festival. Likewise, the pilgrims said a prayer of thanksgiving before every meal. So now we come to what you've all been waiting for, the food. The food served at this Thanksgiving is a bit different from what we've come to know as the traditional feast. It's possible they ate wild turkey given that it was plentiful in the area, but that is not confirmed in Winslow's account. He did write that Governor Bradford sent four men on a fowling mission, but nothing to confirm turkey specifically. The colonists regularly ate ducks, geese, and swans, all of which could have been hunted and brought back by the fowling party. And instead of bread-based stuffing that we use today, they would likely have used herbs, onions, or nuts found in the area to add flavor to whatever kind of bird they were eating. Whether or not turkey was on the menu, we do know that venison was included in the meal. These five deer were hunted not by the colonists, but by the American Indians, which would seem to give some weight to the idea that Massasoit and his men were in the area for those end-of-harvest diplomatic rounds. Whatever it was that motivated Massasoit to hunt and present the deer to the colony, the colonists accepted them and prepared them for the meal, possibly by roasting them on a spit over a fire, they may have used some of the venison to make other dishes like stews, though that is another detail we can only speculate on. Alongside the meat, culinary historians believe there was quite a bit of seafood, something you typically don't find in today's Thanksgiving feasts. Mussels were abundant and easily harvested from the rocks on the shoreline, and American Indians could bring oysters to the colonists, according to Winslow. In addition to the venison, they ate some of what they'd harvested, Based on the local items grown in the area, we can guess that likely additions to the meal were onions, beans, spinach, carrots, lettuce, and cabbage. Possibly peas as well. Pumpkins and parsnips too. A lot of options to choose from. Given the abundance of the corn harvest, it is very likely corn was present in the feast as well, though they wouldn't have eaten it on the cob, as whole kernel corn, or as cream corn the way we find it today they would have removed the corn from the cob and turned it into a thick porridge. 
As far as fruits go, again, there's multiple options. Blueberries, gooseberries, raspberries, grapes, plums, and the ever-popular cranberries. Certainly not in the popular jellied form that so many of us love today. If the pilgrims knew about cranberries and included them in the feast, they didn't make sauces or anything else with them because they'd already used most of the sugar that was brought on the Mayflower. The first Thanksgiving preceded the use of cranberries as sauces alongside meat by roughly 50 years. Two more foods to talk about here. Potatoes being the first. They weren't there. Period. Whole, mashed, white, sweet, roasted, baked, stuffed, or any other form. No potatoes. Lastly, my favorite pie. Pumpkin pie. Pilgrims and the American Indians ate pumpkin and other indigenous squash varieties. However, the colony lacked the necessary butter and wheat flour to make pie crust. They also didn't have a baking oven at the time. So they had the pumpkin, just not the pumpkin pie. Oh, I think I forgot something. Who cooked this food? Which pilgrims were responsible for this grand feast to serve well over 100 people? That would be the four remaining women. Eleanor Billington, Elizabeth Hopkins, Mary Brewster, and Susanna White, who was also the wife of our primary source, Edward Winslow, at the time of the first Thanksgiving. Just a little side note, their wedding on May 12, 1621, was the first in the Plymouth Colony, following the deaths of their respective spouses during that terrible first winter. So four women were responsible for this grand feast. Okay, to be fair... They very likely had young daughters and some servants helping. That's a lot of people to feed. But these four women, the only women to survive the first winter, were still in charge of the feast. And there you have it, the food of the first Thanksgiving. In addition to the food, they also held games and military exercises, along with diplomacy, to continue strengthening ties with the American Indians. But today, our focus is the food. Of course, the traditional meal of today is quite different. The turkey is, as we all know, the star. Though it didn't become so until Lincoln's proclamation of an official Thanksgiving holiday. Venison and seafood are probably part of the meal for some, but certainly aren't in the traditional menu now. Sugar helped cranberries become a staple in one form or another. Corn is still around, but typically not as a porridge. Bread-based stuffing and dressing both came to be prominent, along with a sometimes contentious debate on which one to use and what to call it. There's the green beans, often in a casserole, and of course the pumpkin pie. Plus, everyone has their variations on the traditions. Who knows what modern trends will impact the traditional feast in the future? No matter what we eat, one thing is central, and it was present in 1621 as it is now gathering to give thanks over a delicious meal, one that may be cooked by anyone, and many families who come together will often bring a dish to contribute to the meal. In many households, a prayer is said before the meal, in others, it's not. Either way, we all sit down to eat this special meal together in whatever way fits us and our families, even in such difficult times as this year has delivered. And that's our big festive food in the modern United States. Pretty much the food holiday, so much that it has taken up a large portion of our festive food analysis and conclusions. More so than I intended, but it really is the top event when it comes to food, so I had to focus on it. 
So for the rest of the episode, instead of covering the modern traditions before making the connections, as I have before, I'm going to do them at the same time. I didn't talk too much about it, but the concept of breaking bread between people or groups who are meeting is pretty common. I mentioned it with Samoset, Squanto, Massasoit, and Governor Carver in Plymouth. At some point it came to be representative of making a meaningful connection and affirming trust, such as that between the Pilgrims and the American Indians. More than eating, it's a significant event itself. Trust and connection, working on a way of moving forward together. The origins of the term seem to go back to the Bible when Jesus ate with his disciples. The bread was harder than it is now, and thus was broken more than torn. Think of taking a piece of bread like a baguette that has been so overcooked you could probably hit a home run with it. And think of what it would be like trying to break that piece of bread into smaller pieces. The passage in the Bible is Acts 2.42, which is translated as, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. There's even a hymn titled, Let Us Break Bread Together. Of course, another use of food I didn't talk much about is the opposite of this. The use as a weapon of betrayal and murder under the guise of something fitting the festive food theme. Why do you think some rulers had people to taste their food? Not really festive, but there it is. Let's talk a bit about animal sacrifice. That's always a fun topic. In ancient Greece, we saw that animal sacrifice was a common part of their festivals, not only to sacrifice the animal to the gods, but to then eat it as a special treat. Since the gods got the inedible bits thanks to the trick by Prometheus, humans got the good stuff. We learned about the basic pattern of sacrifice through Homer's Odyssey, with the heifer sacrificed in Athens and being eaten by those in attendance. Small gatherings and large, with animals as large as bulls all the way down to piglets and poultry. The Panathenaea and Great Panathenaea were the big examples of this, and we talked about some smaller scale festivals as well, all sharing the animal sacrifice done as a community. In the Ottoman Empire, we saw sacrifice as part of Eid al-Adha, also tied to religion, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. The festival involved, and still involves, the sacrifice of an animal that is tied to the story of Ibrahim. A sheep was used for the sacrifice, with some being eaten and two-thirds of the animal donated to the needy and the schools. Even today, the sacrifice takes place, though the animal sacrifice depends on the location, and the animal is still eaten as part of the community event. We didn't see much sacrifice taking place in the parts of Africa we looked at, only that of the Baganda and Abanyala peoples who sacrificed animals at the end of the mourning period. Now you might be thinking, oh, we don't have animal sacrifices like that. Well, if you have a traditional dinner on your table, there's probably a Thanksgiving turkey that's feeling pretty sacrificed for this traditional dinner. Not quite the same, but not totally different either. After all, we have a tradition where the President of the United States publicly pardons a turkey which has been given a name. The roots of the tradition go back to at least the 1940s, though the first pardon on record is that of Reagan pardoning Charlie in 1987, with the pardoning becoming an official annual event starting in 1999, with Clinton pardoning Harry. So, you know, it is kind of a sacrifice, in a way. A particular animal killed for a special meal meant to bring us all together. Similar enough. Of course, in most of the above examples, 
the sacrifice relates to religion. So let's now look at how religion plays a part in festive food. In ancient Greece, the gods were honored by and sometimes present for the sacrifice, such as that of Athena as the guardian of Athens in Homer's example. In the festivals, both large and small, religion was the driving force. The sacrifices were eaten, if enough remained after the gods took their part, but it was for the gods themselves that everyone gathered to make the sacrifice in the first place. It was this honoring of the gods that allowed people to enjoy this special food that they otherwise couldn't have. We also saw that the Anthesteria, while not including sacrifice, did include food as a central part of the festivities, namely wine, which was expected of a festival that included Dionysus. In the Ottoman Empire, as well as the modern versions, religion was the reason for everything we looked at. Eid al-Adha centered on the story of Ibrahim's promise to God that he would sacrifice his son and how his devotion to carry out that promise was rewarded by God sparing his son and sending a great sacrifice in his place. This animal, likely a lamb or a ram, was eaten in part by Ibrahim and his family while the rest was given to those in need. The daytime fasting of Ramadan also ties into religion, this time as a commemoration of the revelation of the Quran by the angel Gabriel to the prophet Muhammad. A difficult time for some, but approached with dedication and enthusiasm to show this devotion. And at night, when the fast was broken with traditional foods, including dates and water, everyone gathered as a community, or at least together as a family. And finally, Eid al-Fitr, along with Eid al-Adha, is connected to the Prophet Muhammad declaring that God established the two holidays as a pair, with this one serving as breaking of the fast at the end of Ramadan. In Africa, we found religion in the Osun Osogbo festival among the Yoruba people. The origins are found with the goddess Osun, who was responsible for creating humans and other species. She granted humans permission to build Osogbo near her river. On day two of the nine-day festival, the king held a grand feast for everyone to gather and take part in. Again, we saw something at least akin to festive food when they arrived at the Osun Grove and, along with bathing in the water, drank it and bottled some to take home as part of the festivities. In Ethiopia, we looked at the religious Timket festival celebrating the Epiphany, a time when each church's tabit, a replica of the Ark of the Covenant, is carried out and displayed in a tent and the baptism of Jesus Christ is reenacted. After the tablets were returned to the churches, families returned home to have a big feast together. In the United States, religion isn't a prominent factor in Thanksgiving, though some who do believe in a religion say a prayer and thank God for his blessings before they eat. But religion is more directly involved elsewhere. The Epiphany, celebrated in Ethiopia as Timket, is in fact celebrated in countries all around the world, each with their own traditions. It commemorates the three magi finding and visiting Jesus. A particularly interesting version is found in New Orleans after being brought over from France in 1870. Starting on the day of the Epiphany, which takes place 12 days after Christmas, a special cake called a king cake starts showing up in bakeries. The name comes from the biblical kings. In each cake, they place a little plastic baby representing Jesus. You can then tie this back to the story being commemorated on the Epiphany in which the Magi found Jesus. 
In some celebrations, the person to find the baby is then considered king and must bring the next cake. In other religious gatherings, you'll also frequently find food. Christmas, of course, Easter, Passover, the Eucharist, and others all typically involve food in some way. One of the most famous paintings in the world is The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci, where Jesus ate with his apostles the night before the crucifixion, which is where the Eucharist comes from, a tradition in which sacramental bread and wine represent the body and blood of Christ, which believers consume during a religious rite in the church. The exact outcome of this seems to differ depending on where it takes place, and that's not really a topic for today. Just keep in mind the focus on food and how it ties to a meal in the Bible. I could easily spend an entire episode on food and modern festivals alone, and I may do that in a future episode, but I still have a few more topics to cover today. Let's look at weddings next. In ancient Greece, we didn't have a lot of details about exactly what was eaten, but we did find that there was food tied to weddings. Following the wedding ceremony, the father of the bride hosted a banquet in his home for the newlyweds and the wedding attendees. Oddly, the women did not eat until the men were finished. Details on specific foods consumed aren't available, but it's likely some sort of special meal was prepared for the special occasion, much like how the festivals provided a special treat following the sacrifice though I found no mention of sacrifices for weddings. On a related note, there was Sparta and the first known stag parties. The groom-to-be gathered with his male friends for a big party meant to bond them and for him to promise he won't leave them behind once he has a wife. Naturally, food and drink were present, though again, the specific details are scarce. Regrettably, we did not get to cover weddings in the Ottoman Empire, so we have to skip over them for today. In Africa, we saw a different side of weddings. Rather than big feasts, we saw food present in smaller traditions. Cola nuts and palm wine were both significant in weddings. Cola nuts were used in the man culture as part of a ceremony in which the bride's family ate them to signal approval of the wedding. In Igbo, the bride took a cup of palm liquor to her husband before presenting him to a gathered crowd and freeing her father to accept the bride wealth so they're more intimate uses of food at weddings. In the United States, we've adopted a variety of traditions and food is right there with them. Wedding receptions are very common, much like in ancient Greece. Today's weddings are often followed by a reception which has grown to include dancing, speeches, and of course, food. Though today, wedding receptions are often catered and take place in a location large enough for a large group of people. A natural change, given how much larger most weddings are now than they were back then, with wedding parties of various sizes and guests from all parts of the couple's lives, sometimes numbering in the hundreds. Of course, some weddings are larger than others, and some smaller. Either way, make sure that RSVP card gets in so there's enough food, and be sure to answer the age-old question, chicken or fish? Of course, the specific food is going to vary too. Some couples have foods based on their heritage, be it a shared heritage or two different heritages that they are bringing together. Vegetarians and vegans are each likely to have very different foods available. Foods the wedding couple can't eat or choose not to eat probably won't be there, 
though sometimes the couple will include these foods anyway for their guests. Sometimes the food is self-service. Sometimes the catering service will stay behind to actually serve the wedding guests. And late afternoon and evening weddings may have food closer to a dinner, while earlier weddings may have brunch-type foods. The options are virtually limitless. And of course, the cake. The wedding cake, center of it all, with a top tier not to be eaten until the one-year anniversary when it is taken out of the freezer and is so stale the couple reconsiders the tradition of eating it at all. Alright, maybe that's just a tiny bit dramatic. But really, the cake is a huge deal. Sometimes literally. I've even seen one that was made to hang upside down. There's traditional, beautiful white cakes. Two tiers, three tiers, 20. And that's not being dramatic. It's real, and I've seen it. Nowadays, you might see cakes that aren't so traditional. Couples tailor the design and the taste to what they like. Sometimes the groom even gets to have his own cake with his preferred flavor and design. Again, virtually limitless possibilities. Speaking of the groom, we have those stag parties too. Though more often, they're called bachelor parties. Usually all men, though sometimes co-ed these days, partying in some form, usually drinking, stay in, go out, some poker if that's your thing, or video games, Maybe even that stripper that the bride-to-be is not going to be happy to hear about. <laughs> and chances are, food will be involved. Whether it's cheap snacks at home, or strip club hot wings, or something in between. Really, there's no rules. So much going on with weddings. How they've changed, and how they've stayed the same. It's a truly personalized experience, and the food is a really big part of it. And with the achievement of marriage equality, same-sex couples get to have these experiences too, including choosing that ever-important menu. Always the food. Alright, that's enough about weddings for today. We have one more topic to cover. Now that we know about food when people wed, let's look at food when they're dead. Funerals in ancient Greece, once elaborate displays of wealth, became more modest after Solon's reforms. Less cost, less public mourning, processions before dawn, and any food in a private residence. I wonder what he'd think of the cost of funerals today. As part of the funeral rites, some wine was consumed at the graveside. Then, while we once more like detailed specifics, we know the mourners gathered for a banquet on the final day of the funeral, and this would be held in a home either of the deceased or of a family member. Again, I didn't have a chance to talk about the Ottoman Empire here, so we must skip over them once more. In Africa, we saw how the Ashanti treated funerals as a celebration, and still do. Food was buried with the deceased to help them on their journey. Small gatherings, including foods, were served in the family's home, while larger gatherings were spread out to nearby places. In the Luo culture, we looked at two days dedicated to food. First, the Yaudhut, in which married women served food to the family and neighbors were invited to join in. Tedo came next, in which the children of the deceased cooked a meal only for the relatives. So they had a big public serving of food, and later a private one. Now in the United States, we again find diverse traditions, and sometimes some expensive ones at that. Like weddings, gatherings can be large or small. 
The exact nature of the funeral depends on many factors, such as whether or not the deceased was cremated. Where there is a burial, often there is a procession from the place of the funeral to the graveside, much like in ancient Greece. And for many, there is food served after. Now, once again, the food served varies as well as where it is served and by whom. Growing up in the South, I personally saw traditions that very closely tie into some of the others we explored. Following the graveside service, some of the family and loved ones gather afterward. A common location for the gathering is the deceased's home, but it's not the only place. Food served at this gathering usually isn't catered, but often brought by people who attended the funeral. Family and community gather together to share stories and celebrate, often in a somber way, the life of the deceased over food. Of course, funeral traditions in the United States are as varied as the people here. What I just mentioned is only from my personal experience. You may have experienced very different funerals, with or without food. Feel free to discuss that in any of your own personal experiences with food. It's a huge theme for us, and discussion is a great way to cover more of it. By the way, can you believe I delivered that wed and deadline with a straight face? <laughs> so that's it. That's the conclusion of our festive food theme. Ancient Greece, the Ottoman Empire, Africa, and the United States, including a whole lot about Thanksgiving and at least a little bit about the rest. There's just something about food that brings people together and makes us want to celebrate or mourn or whatever it is taking place. Now, December is almost here, and a new month means a new theme. You might be able to guess this one, or close to it. As always, the theme will be announced on Friday, which is actually tomorrow, so keep an eye out. Until then, take care. <laughs>